presents Doctor Who, The Code of Flesh by Andrew Lane. Read by Dan Starkey. This is not a sausage as I understand the term, James McFarlane said, staring at his plate in surprise. It's a Glamorgan sausage, his friend Miles Mitchelson said from the other side of the table. Traditional Welsh dish, hence the name. I did try to guide you in the direction of the mutton, but you were resistant to my attempts. I mean, it looks like a sausage, but I can't find any trace of meat inside. McFarlane shook his head in disbelief. As far as I can ascertain, this thing is made of crumbled cheese mixed with shreds of some kind of vegetable, all rolled in breadcrumbs and then fried. The cheese is carefully, and the vegetables are leeks and spring onions, I think you'll find. McFarlane frowned. The cheese is carefully... what? No, I mean, it comes from Caerphilly, which is a town in the south of the country. If it makes you feel any better, the cheese and the leeks will have been bound together with pork fat so at least there is some animal in there. That's very comforting, McFarlane said, picking up a small piece of the sausage on his fork and examining it critically. And what's that you're eating? Cowl, his friend replied. It's a kind of Welsh stew with beef and bacon, and these little things here on the side are oatmeal dumplings. Plaintively, McFarlane asked. Next time, can we go to a restaurant that does a decent steak? Mitchelson grinned. If we can't find a steakhouse in a port like Cardiff, of all places, then there's a serious problem. But I have to ask, what's the point in coming to Wales if you don't take in some of the local colour? I can get all the colour I need just by talking with the local people, McFarlane said primly. Which reminds me, you said you had something that might make an interesting story I could take back to London. Something the Strand or the Gentleman's Magazine might print. Actually, I think I do. Mitchelson leaned back in his chair and reached out for his glass of beer. You've knocked around a bit. Have you ever heard of something called an anesthesia frolic? I can't say I have. But you are familiar with anesthetics in general. McFarlane nodded slowly. Passingly, they are drugs that supposedly put people into a deep sleep where they don't feel any pain, so they can have operations performed on them that otherwise would have caused them to writhe about in agony and disturb the surgery. I believe they are gradually being taken up in the United States of America, although there is significant resistance from the medical profession in England. Liquid chloroform and opium dissolved into a sponge come to mind. I can't say I would fancy taking the risk myself. I have heard reports of people dying under these anaesthetics, and even surgical theatres exploding when the chloroform was ignited by the gas lamps. Mitchelson's expression was deadpan. Indeed, my dear James, but as we approach the 20th century, things may be changing. There is a practicing physician here in Cardiff who has struck upon the most marvellous idea. He invites various influential guests to dinner, and then, between dessert and the cheese and nut platter, he invites them all to try out some newfangled thing called ether. Everyone passes out together, then they all wake up happily about an hour later. It's an excellent way to get people talking about it, whilst at the same time demonstrating its safety. Or so he says. McFarlane thought for a moment. It does sound interesting, he said eventually. 
I would have to attend one of these frolics, of course, just to build up some local colour. Would that be possible? I could make some inquiries, Mitchelson said. Give me a day or two. Now, if you're not going to eat those sausages, then pass them over here and order yourself some Welsh rarebit as a replacement. McFarlane felt his stomach suddenly rumble. I am particular to a nice bit of rabbit, he said happily. Perhaps in a mustard cream sauce. Mitchelson looked at him pityingly across the table. There's no rabbit in Welsh rarebit, he said, shaking his head. Two days later, a letter arrived at the hotel where McFarlane was staying. He ripped it open with eager hands. Inside, he found a single sheet of headed paper. Handwritten on it were the words, Madam Helen Griffiths, local lady, widow of a rich importer. Friends of mine tell me she attended several of the anesthesia frolics we spoke about. Strangely, she appears to have become something of a recluse. Nobody has seen her for several months, although food is delivered to our house, which is on Tea Draw Road. Yours in haste but friendship, Miles Mitchelson. According to the hotel concierge, Roth Park was within carriage ride distance. Checking the time, McFarlane realised that he could still visit Madame Griffiths before six o'clock. Quickly, he rushed downstairs and hailed a passing horse-drawn carriage, just as he would have done in London or Edinburgh, or any major town or city. The driver's glum expression indicated that he hadn't had a fare in quite a while. Roth Park was a pleasant area of trees and grass with a small brook flowing through it. Tea Draw Road was obviously the home of a number of well-to-do people and families. The houses were detached, set in well-kept gardens. He located the address given in Mitchelson's note, made his way up to the door and rang the bell. Moments later, it opened to reveal a maid clad in black taffeta and white lace. Mr. James McFarlane to see Madame Griffiths, he said, holding out his card. He had already written a single word on the back. Frolics. He hoped that this was enough to snag Madame Griffiths' attention. The maid gave him a suspicious glance, took the card, bobbed a curtsy, and vanished into the shadows of the hall. A minute later, she returned and opened the door further. Madame Griffiths will see you, she said, sounding a trifle surprised at the idea and gestured to him to enter. McFarlane's overriding impression was one of shadows and general stuffiness, as if no curtain or window had been opened for some time. The maid led him into one of the front rooms, where he stood just inside the doorway, waiting for his eyes to become accustomed to the gloom. Mr. McFarlane, a woman's voice said. It sounded educated, with a mere hint of what he had come to recognise as a Welsh accent. He judged its owner to be in her sixties. Please sit yourself down. You are lucky. It is so rare I choose to receive visitors these days. I apologise for intruding, he said as he sat down. As his eyes adjusted, he discerned a vaguely human shape in a chair a little way away from him. Please, the apology should be mine. I live in darkness now, as you can see. The light is not kind to me but I should not inflict its absence upon you. Can I offer you some tea, and perhaps some barabreeth? Unsure what barabreeth was, but not wanting to seem rude, McFarlane said, That would be lovely, thank you. 
I do not believe I know you, Mr. McFarlane. That is true, he replied, and I am left wondering why you agree to see me at all. Partly because I received a letter from a slight acquaintance of mine, Mr. Miles Mitchelson, asking me to do so, but mostly because of the word you wrote on the back. She suddenly leaned forward. What do you know of the anesthesia frolics, Mr. McFarlane? Not as much as I would like to. Perhaps that is as it should be, she mused. Tell me, are you a policeman? A private investigator, perhaps? I am a journalist. Ah. She paused for a moment, obviously considering his response carefully. There was a soft knock at the door, and the maid entered with a tray. She set it down on a small table between McFarlane and Madame Griffiths. Would you care to pour, Mary? The maid poured two cups of tea, added milk, and passed one to McFarlane. As Madame Griffiths reached for her own cup, McFarlane had to stop himself from reacting when he saw, caught in a pale shaft of light that filtered between the curtains, the woman's hand. Or rather, what was left of it, for the two smallest fingers were missing. McFarlane wondered why she hadn't used her other hand to take the cup. But when his gaze moved across, he had to stifle another gasp. Even in the shadows, he could see that the entire other hand was missing. I will not tell you anything about the frolics, Mr. McFarlane, she said. It is not my place, and Dr. Trithewi will be angry with me for spilling secrets. I do not want to make him angry. I will prevail upon him to send you an invitation. I would, however, advise you not to accept that invitation, and instead to leave Cardiff. I suspect you will not take heed of my advice. You strike me as having a resolute core under your diffident exterior. Now we will talk about that whole unpleasant subject no more. Please, help yourself to some barabreath. Don't look so worried, it is merely a tea bread made with spices and currants. For the next half hour they talked about Wales and Cardiff, but pointedly not about the anaesthesia frolics. Eventually it became obvious that Madame Griffiths was tiring, so McFarlane made his excuses to leave. Mr. McFarlane, said his hostess as he reached the door, I will repeat my earlier warning. If an invitation arrives, I implore you to ignore it. Your life may well change if you do not, and not in a way you would like. Thank you for the warning, for your stories, and for the tea and... Bara breathe, he said, and left. As he walked along the edge of the park, looking for a carriage to take him back to his hotel, McFarlane was so wrapped up in his thoughts that his mind barely registered the sound of a stone being kicked behind him. Turning, he saw a flicker of movement as someone stepped rapidly behind a tree. He gained a quick impression of a large man dressed in a long coat, with a hat pulled down low over his forehead. McFarlane wasn't sure whether to flee or to confront this would-be stalker, but at that moment a carriage for hire rattled around a corner. Relieved, he hailed it and got on board. As it moved off, he leaned out of the window, looking backwards. The figure had stepped out of the sanctuary of the tree and was now staring after him. McFarlane shivered and pulled his head back inside. Early in the morning, three days later, he found an envelope that had been slipped under his hotel room door. It contained a stark white invitation card with crinkled edges. Printed on it were the words, Dr. Anton Trithewi invites you to a dinner party frolic, along with an address 
a time and a date, the evening after next. He couldn't help but smile. Things appeared to be moving, and in a direction that favoured him. He made a note to send Madame Griffith some flowers. Most of the next two days were occupied with procuring clothes more suitable for a dinner party than his own dishevelled suit and bowler hat. On the afternoon of the dinner party, he found himself growing increasingly nervous. He bathed, dressed, and at the appropriate time, secured a carriage to take him to Dr. Trithui's address. The house was a grand affair, probably three times the size of Madame Griffith's dwelling. A carriage was pulling away just as McFarlane's own one arrived, and another one was lining up to follow him into the drive. He disembarked, already feeling self-conscious in his new suit and shirt. Upon showing his invitation, a butler ushered him into a small ballroom, where several groups of people were talking, and servants circulated with trays of aperitifs. McFarlane immediately spotted a man who was almost certainly Professor Trithui, given the loudness of his voice and the way the other guests were clustering around him. Trithui was a big middle-aged man, bearded yet with an almost bare scalp. McFarlane was just about to go over and attempt to engage him in conversation when he was astonished to hear a familiar voice behind him. There are probably millions of people less likely to be here than you, James McFarlane, but even so, this is an unlikely coincidence. I sense the wheels of fate turning. Doctor? McFarlane almost spluttered. The feeling that suddenly bubbled up in his chest, like hot lava from a volcano, was a mixture of excitement and fear. Well met by gaslight, Mr. McFarlane. The speaker was slender, with long hair falling on either side of his face. His blue eyes seemed to fix on McFarlane as brightly as a spotlight picking out an actor on a stage. The last time McFarlane had seen those eyes had been in Edinburgh, when both men had been involved in a set of strange, almost unbelievable events. The doctor had vanished afterwards, eluding every attempt to track him down. Yet here he was, and apparently wearing the exact same clothes, with the exception of the cravat loosely knotted around his neck. That at least had changed. Can I presume that we are both here for the same reason? The doctor went on. The anesthesia phonics. Indeed. A good name for a band in about 120 years from now, don't you think? Uh, what? But the doctor had moved on. Oh, you should probably know that I am here under a false name. Dr. Ivor Puy. I thought it sounded suitably Welsh. Tell me, are you still James McFarlane or are you incognito as well? I'm still myself, Doctor, but won't people notice that you haven't got the accent to match? People notice what they want to notice, the doctor said. But what have you been doing since we last met? It's been nearly a year. Has it? The doctor shrugged. It seems longer. I've been doing what I always do, travelling, finding things that are broken, running around for a while, and then making what repairs I can. I understand that you have been continuing your work as a journalist. I've seen your name on several stories. I'm flattered that you noticed, McFarlane said. I thought your work exposing the scandal at the Non-Parade Club was exemplary. McFarlane frowned. I believe you may have me confused with another journalist there. I don't recognise the story. Ah, the doctor said vaguely. Perhaps it hasn't happened yet. Just ignore me. Most people do until it's too late. McFarlane was about to ask the doctor what he meant by that when a large figure loomed up beside them. Dr. Chithui, we were just discussing you, said the doctor. Thank you for your kind invitation. Dr. Pui, Trithui said. Thank you for accepting. I am very keen to spread the word about ether amongst the medical establishment. Have you been anaesthetized before, Doctor? 
Two minute times to count. A look of puzzlement shadowed Rathui's face like a passing cloud. He turns to McFarlane. And you, I believe, are Mr. James McFarlane, a journalist to be watched, I am told. I am not sure I like the idea of being watched, replied McFarlane. I much prefer to stand on the sidelines and do the watching myself. Said like a true reporter. Are you intending to write about your experiences tonight? If I can find a magazine that will take such an article. Don't waste your time on the British Medical Journal or The Lancet. They have both taken against the idea of anesthesiology. Getting them to reconsider in the light of this new gas ether is proving very difficult. McFarlane was about to respond when a servant in the doorway banged a small brass gong. Ah, dinner is served, Trithui announced. Ladies and gentlemen, let the frolics begin. I once knew a man named Frolics, the doctor murmured as they walked towards the dining room. Well, I say man, more of a shellfish as it turned out. McFarlane found himself seated away from the doctor for dinner. The lady on his left turned out to be Dr. Trithui's daughter, while the lady on his right was the wife of a local civic dignitary. He made small talk with them as best he could, whilst every now and then trying to make eye contact with the doctor. But the doctor wasn't paying him any attention. Instead, he appeared to be entertaining the ladies on either side of him with, from what McFarlane could hear, a stream of increasingly unlikely tales at which they giggled with their hands covering their mouths. The only words he heard the doctor utter, during a momentary lulling conversation around the rest of the table were, And so I said to him, You're perfectly at liberty to plant yourself there, but don't think I'm going to water you. The dinner, McFarlane was relieved to find, was based on a traditional English menu rather than a problematic Welsh one. A delicate cucumber soup was followed by baked Dover sole, and that in turn gave way to pheasant in a mandarin orange sauce. The main course was veal escalops, served with mushrooms and creamed carrots, which pleased him very much. This was proper food. The dinner had been so fine, and the small talk from either side of him so distracting, that McFarlane had almost forgotten why he was there. It came as some surprise when, instead of a dessert course arriving, Dr. Trithui stood up and clapped his hands together. Ladies and gentlemen, we now come to that part of the evening which I have been anticipating eagerly, and you perhaps have been anticipating with some trepidation. Let me reassure you, ether is a perfectly safe substance, neither as inflammable nor as poisonous as chloroform. The amount that you would need to aspirate in order to cause injury or death is far above the dose required to render you insensible. You would almost have to drown in the stuff before it became a problem. <laughs> Believe me, ether is the future of surgery. Under its effects, even the most extreme removals or amputations can be undertaken without causing the patient any pain. McFarlane noticed that two of the servants were wheeling in a trolley, on top of which lay a series of cloth-covered objects. And to demonstrate that, Trithui went on, moving out from behind the table, I would like to invite you all to partake of this miraculous liquid with me. He looked around. Rest assured, I have done this more than 20 times this year alone, and nobody has suffered even the slightest injury. McFarlane glanced over at the doctor, and this time he found his friend's gaze turned in his direction. Once again, he felt like it was having a stage limelight suddenly directed at him. Be careful, the doctor seemed to be saying and watch carefully. Dr. Trithui strode towards the trolley and dramatically pulled the sheet from it. The objects beneath turned out to be a bowl, a stoppered glass vessel containing a clear liquid, 
and twelve waxed leather masks designed to cover the lower face. Each mask was accessorized with a small leather pouch connected to it by a short rubber tube. With reverence, almost as if they were carrying out some religious ceremony, each of the servants picked up a mask. Macfarlane saw that each mask had a laced-up slit, which the servants proceeded to undo. Then, using pairs of silver tongs, they dipped small sponges into the clear liquid and then inserted them into the leather pouches and repeated the process for two more masks. The servants then wheeled the trolley around the table so that Dr. Trithui could hand the masks out to the nervous diners. Please do not put your masks on until I say so, he said as he dispensed the last but one, reserving the very last mask for himself. He returns to his seat. Now, please, take a look at the clock on the mantelpiece. Note the time, don your masks, and breathe normally. Macfarlane slipped the leather straps over his head and snuggled the mask against his jawline. He took an experimental breath through his nose. The ether smelled sweet and slightly sharp. I am going to count backwards from ten, Trithui said. Please concentrate on what I am saying. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Macfarlane didn't remember any more numbers. Indeed, he didn't remember anything else at all until he felt hands removing the mask from his head. His mouth was dry and his eyes were closed. He opened them and looked blearily around the table. If you would care to check your timepieces or the clock on the mantelpiece, you will find that half an hour has passed. Although for you, I venture it feels like mere seconds. I trust that none of you is feeling any after-effects. Please say if you are. And now perhaps we could move on to dessert while you reflect upon your first experience of ether. Trithui clapped his hands and servants ended with dishes of treacle pudding slathered with cream. Macfarlane fell upon it, feeling suddenly famished. He found that for a while he could only turn his thoughts to one thing at a time. Trithui's words, the clock, the treacle pudding. Although gradually his mental faculties came back, and by the time the second pudding course, a rhubarb syllabub, arrived, he was, as far as he could tell, back to his usual mental state. At least, that's what he thought. It was strange, then, that it took him until the arrival of the cheese and biscuits to realise that two guests were missing from the table. One was a military man with a large moustache, whom he'd earlier noticed sitting at the far end of the table. The other was the doctor. Excuse me, he said hesitantly, raising his hand. We do not appear to be a complete dinner party anymore. Ah, yes, Trithui said. Major Carfax had to leave. Recalled by his colonel, he asked me to convey his apologies. And the... and Dr. Poi? Macfarlane asked. Dr. Trithui frowned. It seemed to Macfarlane that he was uncertain. Yes, he was uh, called away as well, I believe. A medical matter, apparently. Before Macfarlane could say anything else, Trithui continued. Now, once we have finished the cheese and biscuits, I propose that the women withdraw to my lounge for coffee, while the gentlemen remain here for brandy and cigars. But don't worry, I promise you that the ether will not catch fire in your lungs. 
McFarlane wanted to ask for more details on the Doctor's disappearance, but he was aware that Trithui had deliberately shut him down. He also suspected that Trithui didn't actually know. Instead, he took the opportunity to quiz the remaining male guests about their experience under anaesthetic for his article, then made his excuses and left. He walked back to his rooms, using the time and cold night air to clear any last remnants of ether from his lungs. As he pushed open the door of his room, a voice said, I apologize for entering uninvited, but the window was open. Doctor, McFarlane said, relieved. Thank heavens for that. I was worried that something had happened to you. Did the ether affect you badly? It didn't affect me at all. I have a secondary respiratory system, very useful at times like this, less so during hay fever season. No, I pretended to be unconscious so I could see what transpired, and what transpired was the two servants came in while you were all asleep and took Major Carfax away. Good Lord! Indeed, I slipped out to follow and saw them put the Major into a carriage outside. Obviously, I climbed onto the back of the carriage. The doctor stopped. A shadow passed across his face. It was hard to hear what they were saying above the noise of the cobbles, but I could swear that they were discussing stopping somewhere quiet, removing the Major's ears, and then returning him home. That seemed a trifle rude, if not to say unpleasant. I was about to climb in through the carriage window and overpower them somehow. I hadn't quite worked out the details, but I was sure something would come to me in the spirit of the moment, it usually does, when the whole carriage overturned. I was sent rolling across the road and into some bushes. From there, I watched a man wearing a cloak and hat pull the Major out of the carriage and sling him over his shoulder. He was about to move off when one of the servants attempted to intervene. This mysterious man knocked the servant unconscious without dropping the Major, turned his head calmly to look at me, and then walked away. You didn't try to stop him? It turned out that I had fallen into a hawthorn thicket. By the time I'd extricated myself, he had vanished. With the Major. McFarlane tried to process the Doctor's extraordinary story, but found that his mind kept circulating around one particular grotesque aspect. Ears, he said. They were going to remove his ears. But why? Because they needed them, I presume. Why else? What do we do now? Surely we have to report this kidnapping to the authorities. Well, we could, the doctor mused. But they would just take the matter off our hands and we'd never get to know what the resolution is. If they ever manage to resolve it. No, I think we're better off conducting our own investigation. He smiled suddenly and it was as if a stray ray of sunlight had unexpectedly entered McFarlane's room. It's just like old times, isn't it? McFarlane felt he should act as if he were appalled by the doctor's suggestion, yet inside he was whooping with joy. It was just like old times, and he'd missed the feeling. Where do we start? he asked. Where would you suggest? The dinner party will have broken up by now. Dr. Trithui obviously knows something, although your disappearance appeared to confuse him. Let's ask him some pointed questions. Perhaps he'll let me finish my meal, the doctor said, heading towards the door. I miss dessert. Both desserts, McFarlane added, following. They managed to find a carriage in fairly short order and headed back towards Dr. Tethewi's house. As McFarlane had suspected, the dinner party had ended and the guests' carriages had all departed. McFarlane noticed that the front door had been left open. As they got closer still, he realised that it had been torn from its hinges. Curious, the doctor observed, and not unforbidding. Inside, they discovered one footman unconscious on the floor of the entrance hall and a second at the foot of the main staircase. Another door beyond had been smashed open. 
And through the doorway, McFarlane could see bookshelves and a desk. Dr. Trithui's study, he thought, as he led the way through. Yet Dr. Trithui wouldn't be doing any more studying. His damaged, contorted body lay on the desk. It was clear that he'd been involved in a terrible struggle with a powerful opponent. I think, said the doctor, that whoever took Major Carfax away from his kidnappers made his own visit here. Whatever his motives, they appear to be very personal. We're obviously not going to find out anything from Dr. Chathui, McFarlane said, feeling sick but trying not to show it. And by now any servants who aren't unconscious will almost certainly have flown. We should get out of here before we're somehow blamed for all of this. Perhaps we ought to track down Major Carfax, the doctor mused. Assuming that our mystery man isn't keeping him prisoner somewhere, he might well be at home wondering exactly what happened. Don't try to run, a clear voice rang out behind them. I have this place surrounded. McFarlane whirled round to see a burly man in a senior police uniform standing in the doorway, a constable beside him. They were looking at them the way McFarlane would sometimes look at stray dogs on the street, wondering if they were going to bite him. This is a big house, the doctor pointed out, also turning round. It would take a lot of men to surround it properly. I say twenty at the very least. Maybe you have that many men available, but Cardiff being what it is on a Saturday night, I sincerely doubt it. So if my friend here and I decided to say run for the window and smash our way out, there's a fair chance we could get away. Constable, get a man outside that window, the man in the doorway snapped. That was just a random example, the doctor went on. There are several other ways we could escape, up the chimney perhaps, or through a secret door in that bookcase. Constable, the senior said through clenched teeth before stopping to take a deep breath. I'll take both your names and no back chat. You first, the doctor said. The policeman closed his eyes and appeared to sigh. I am Sergeant Williams, he said heavily. Now who are you? I am Dr. Ivor Puy, the doctor said. And this is my good friend, Mr. James McFarlane. And just what are you doing here? We were guests at a dinner party earlier on. Obviously, Dr. Trithui can't confirm that, but I'm sure you can check it with the staff if you can find them. We left some time ago, but I realised I had left my screwdriver behind, so we returned to get it. Your screwdriver? Sergeant Williams asked, frowning. One of a kind, the doctor replied smoothly. It has great sentimental value. When we got here, we found the door smashed in, and Dr. Trithui, as you see him. That's a pretty story, Sergeant Williams said, but there are more holes in it than in one of my mother's lace doilies. The most cursory investigations will quickly reveal that we were both elsewhere at the time of the attack, the doctor said. So why don't you save time and assume that our story is true and that we got here just before you did? Which reminds me, why exactly are you here? Screams, Sergeant Williams said. Just that, the sound of a man screaming in agony. It was heard by several other households in the area. A scream can travel a long way, the doctor observed. I've heard them echo from one side of the galaxy to the other. Innocence you may be, the sergeant said, and that remains to be seen. But either way, I'm going to have to ask you to accompany me back to the police station. That sounds like an excellent idea, the doctor said. Could we visit the kitchen on the way out? I'm hoping there might be some spare desserts. The journey to the nearest police station was an uncomfortable one. The carriage was an open wagon with benches along the sides and a long metal pipe running down the middle, to which the arrested could be handcuffed to make sure they didn't jump out. McFarlane had been worried that he and the doctor would be separated and interrogated in dank subterranean cells. But instead, they were taken to a large room filled with desks and freestanding blackboards and given mugs of hot, sweet tea. 
I take it that this dinner party was one of Dr. Trithui's anesthesia frolics, as he appetises them, William said, sitting on the opposite side of a desk from McFarlane. The doctor was restlessly prowling the room, holding his mug of tea in both hands. You know about them then, McFarlane said. Indeed I do. We've had no actual complaints, but it's a rum matter and no mistake. I'd love to close them down before something goes wrong and a person dies. He snorted. Which they now have, although not in the manner I expected. I always thought someone was going to snuff it while they were under the influence, as it were. But there's more to it than that, isn't there, Sergeant? The doctor called from the far side of the room. You've got far bigger fish to fry than the late Dr. Chathewey. Williams shook his head. Cardiff's a strange city, always has been. Stranger than most, I warrant. And then, there's the disappearances. The doctor's head popped out from behind a blackboard. Disappearances? Originally, it was bodies being stolen from graveyards and marcheries. Just grave robbers, we thought, because of the new medical school needing bodies to dissect. Then suddenly, a few years ago, it changed a bit of actual, living people. Bits like fingers and hands, McFarlane mumbled, thinking about Mrs. Griffiths. Bits like ears, the doctor said. Williams nodded. All of that and more. It's been very difficult for me to find this out, because nobody wants to talk. But as far as I can tell, people were being knocked out, then waking up in their houses with their feet, their eyes, even sometimes their kidneys gone. Some of them go to the police, but most of them become recluses in their own homes, either unable or unwilling to come out. And I imagine others disappear completely. The doctor suddenly appeared on the opposite side of the room. You can take a hand or an ear and people can keep going, but take their heart or their lungs and it's a bit more difficult. Indeed, said Sergeant Williams grimly. I suppose you investigated the medical school? Thoroughly. Nothing suspicious came up. And you think that Dr. Trithui is in some way connected? McFarlane ventured, having seen something in the policeman's expression. I've got no evidence, William said, but I do have over 30 years of experience. I'm convinced that Trithui is, or was, part of it, but I don't know how or why. Abruptly, he levered himself up from his chair. Come and look at this. He led McFarlane and the doctor to a notice board on the wall. A map of the city had been attached to the board, and McFarlane noticed that drawing pins littered the map in an apparently random scattering. These are all the incidents I know about. I was hoping to establish a pattern or a centre or something. The trouble is, there isn't one. As you can see, the pins are all over the place. Not so, the doctor said. I'd say there are several different overlapping patterns there, giving the impression of chaos. We just need to pick them apart to find the order beneath. Are you sure? Williams asked. Let me demonstrate. Do you have any sealing wax? Williams delved into a desk drawer and brought out a stick of wax and a box of Lucifer matches. The doctor took them from him, lit a match and said, Right, if you can, point out all of the pins that represent missing people. As Williams indicated pin after pin, the doctor used the match to melt a fragment of red wax onto each head. He stepped back, considering his efforts. There! As you can clearly see, we have two separate patterns. One is for missing bodies, the other is for missing body parts taken from the living. What does it mean? Williams asked. Two different attackers, two different working areas, centred on two different places. Williams frowned. His finger touched the centre of the pattern made by the wax-topped drawing pins. That's Dr. Trithui's house, he observed in wonder. 
Which raises an obvious question, the doctor said. Rapidly, he tapped the centre of the other circle. Who lives here? I'll pull together a search party, William said decisively. You two, stay here until we get back. I'll put a man on the door to make sure you don't leave. A few seconds later, the doctor headed for the door as well. We only have a few moments before our guard arrives, he said, springing back and grabbing McFarlane's collar. Come on! For the fourth time that night, McFarlane found himself on a carriage ride through Cardiff. This time they were heading into the seamier sections near the docks, where the buildings were dilapidated, men walked with their heads down and their caps pulled low, and children ransacked the pockets of sleeping beggars. McFarlane turned his head away in disquiet. These were the stories he should be writing about. But who would pay to read them? The carriage dropped them at the end of a street, near a large house with a portico in the centre of two wings. It had seen better days. Its bricks were crumbling away, and several tiles had fallen off the roof and into the jungle-like garden. It seemed derelict. The doctor avoided the main door. Instead, he led McFarlane around to the back of the house. There they found an old conservatory, its broken window panes lined with velvet curtains, permanently drawn against the outside. The back door easily gave way to the doctor's hand. McFarlane gasped at the furniture inside the large curtained room among its several large, freestanding gas lamps. Oddly, given the general air of dilapidation, they were lit. This is an operating theatre, he exclaimed. Indeed, and a very well-appointed one at that. What are those things for? The laden jars, the doctor considered. Batteries in a crude form, holding massive electrical charges. You can see that they're connected to the operating table by these cables. But why? Why indeed, the doctor murmured. Yet it seemed to McFarlane that he already knew, or at least suspected. You're thinking it's to do with the stolen body parts, McFarlane said darkly, looking around. It seems to me that I have read a shocker of a book very much along these lines. Don't tell me. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, said the doctor. Personally, I'm waiting for the film to come out, or other films. But yes, I do think it's to do with the theft. I too have seen something like this, a long way from here. A body constructed from other bodies. The doctor was about to investigate a massive teak operating table in the centre of the repurposed conservatory, when McFarland heard a noise from somewhere in the house. What's that? he asked. The doctor tilted his head, listening. It sounds to me as if someone's been imprisoned and wants to get out. He and McFarlane made their way through the conservatory and into the decaying house beyond. Every room told the same story. Plaster had fallen from the ceiling and wallpaper had peeled from the walls. Rising damp had caused the floorboards to warp and black mould to spread from the corners. Beyond the kitchen, McFarlane found a stairway leading down to the basement. The doctor pulled a match from one of his many pockets and struck it against the wall. It glowed with a strangely steady flame. As they got to the bottom of the stairs, McFarlane expected him to have to discard the match and light another, but it didn't seem to have burned down at all. Downstairs, the floors were of packed earth rather than tiles and the damp brick walls were devoid of plaster. The sounds came from a bolted door at the end of a passage. McFarlane could hear a regular thudding, as well as inarticulate moaning. Don't worry, old chap, the doctor called as he reached for the bolts. 
We'll have you out of here in a jiffy, or even a tick, whichever is shorter. If you pull that bolt, a voice said from behind them, one of two things will happen. Either I shall place a bullet through your head, or the poor benighted creature inside will rip your throat out. McFarlane and the doctor both turned. In the shadows at the far end of the passage stood a man with a gun. Ah, the doctor said. You must be the carriage toppler and major kidnapper. I'm the doctor and this- Upstairs. Now, the man said. He backed away, keeping his revolver trained on them all the time. And wordlessly, they followed. Once upstairs, McFarlane took a closer look at the man. He was big and muscular, and his face was rough like that of a boxer. A wide-brimmed leather hat shadowed his face, and the cuffs of his long leather coat half covered his shovel-like hands. McFarlane noticed that the coat collar was raised, shielding the man's neck. Their new assailant's revolver gestured them into a well-appointed library, starkly at odds with the dilapidation of the rest of the house. He indicated where they should sit down, and took a comfortable chair opposite, still pointing his gun in their direction. What to do with you, he mused. I don't think you're with Trithui, but then I doubt you're with me either. What is your interest in events? Slowly, the doctor said, I wouldn't call it interest. There was a bleak tone in his voice that sounded to McFarlane like barely controlled fury. Abhorrent fascination probably covers it better. And what do you think I'm doing that is so abhorrently fascinating? Because whatever you think it is, you are wrong. My name is Professor Wolfcastle, by the way. He gestured to a side table. Please help yourselves to Sherry. Pour one for me. A large one, if you please. I don't drink with monsters, the doctor snapped. And what makes me a monster, exactly? You take bits of other people, living or dead, and you use them to create abominations. The doctor seemed to be on the verge of leaping out of his chair and attacking their captor, but McFarlane had seen the man's cuff slip back as he gestured towards the sherry, and had noticed something. Doctor, he said warningly. You are right, Wolfcastle said. I am a monster, but not in the way you think. Abruptly, he reached up to his collar and tugged it down. McFarlane gasped at the sight of the massive, red-wheeled and crudely stitched scar that encircled his neck. Then Wolfcastle pulled back the cuffs of his coat to reveal equally crude scars around his wrists. Some monsters are self-made, he said calmly. Others are created that way. The ensuing silence lasted for some time. McFarlane's brain whirled, trying to piece together the fluttering fragments of fact to form a coherent picture. He suspected that the doctor was doing the same, only much, much faster. He heard his friend say, The creature in the cellar is the real Professor Wolfcastle, I presume. That would make you his creation, and a very impressive one, I must say. You flatter me, or you flattered the professor. Yes, I took his name, his house, and his position. It was the least he owed me. And then you imprisoned him in the cellar. Again, that bleak, matter-of-fact tone. I can't say I approve, but perhaps I understand. I am not looking for approval. 
Wolfcastle said, gazing levelly at the doctor. The professor was always unstable. What sane man could do the things he did? By the time I learned to reason and to talk, I realised that he was close to a mental collapse. He was talking about killing yet more people. Women, this time. To make a bride for me. As if I wanted one. But those obsessive thoughts finally pushed him over the edge. He became insane. I keep him locked up, not to punish him, but to stop him from killing more people. I clean him, and I feed him. I even read to him, as he used to read to me. The child is the father of the man, the doctor mused quietly. Wordsworth, Wolfcastle smiled. My favourite poet. So, you settled here, living a quiet life of reading and contemplation. The doctor sounded uncertain about how much he should believe Wolfcastle. And then what happened? Why venture out into the world and risk discovery? You were safe here in the dark. Wolfcastle opened his mouth to answer, and Macfarlane flinched as he thought he saw stitches around the man's tongue. The doctor kept on speaking, and so Wolfcastle closed his mouth again, listening. Yes, of course I've got it, said the doctor. It all started up again, isn't it? The disappearances, the mutilations. But this time it wasn't Professor Wolfcastle behind it all. It was Dr. Trithui. The man calling himself Wolfcastle, if indeed he was a man, Macfarlane mused, nodded slowly. I don't know why. I don't think it is for the same reasons. Regardless, I tracked him down through his victims, and I took action. I saw you outside Mrs. Griffith's house, Macfarlane interjected, remembering. And I saw you, Wolfcastle replied. I wasn't sure at the time what part you played in this affair, but I followed you eventually to Trithui's house. Where you killed the occupant, the doctor said calmly. I judged him, and I found him wanting. That wasn't your place. If not mine, then whose? If I was made for something, doctor, it was to stop monstrous behaviour such as that which created me. He fixed the doctor with a penetrating gaze. And if it is not my place to judge, then is it yours? Again, there was silence for a few moments. Then the doctor abruptly sprang to his feet. I can't bring Dr. Trithui back, and I'm not sure I would want to. I don't believe you were a threat to anyone else, but we need to find out what Trithui was doing. Why did he need those body parts? I don't know if it helps, but before killing Trithui, I followed his carriage to the wharfs and back, to an old dairy warehouse on Hengoid Street that appears deserted but isn't. Then that is where we go. Thank you for the information. Wolfcastle made to lever himself up from the chair. Watching him move, Macfarlane realised that the poor devil must be in constant pain. I'm coming with you, Wolfcastle said. No, the doctor was firm. You have done enough. Stay here, look after your maker, read poetry and philosophy. What comes next is for James and me to deal with. I have a cart at the side of the house, Wolfcastle said, sitting back down and wincing. There is a horse as well. Take them, and thank you. Thank you, the doctor said. And I'm sorry. What for? I'm just sorry. Life is usually taken to be a gift, but for you, it is a curse.
A few minutes later, they had secured the horse to the cart and they were underway, rattling through deserted streets in the early hours of the morning. Macfarlane found himself thinking about the strange, noble man they had left behind them. And this time he decided, yes, Wolf Castle was a man, by any definition of the word. They had to stop several times. The first was so that the doctor could recruit several local men to pick up a large and apparently heavy blue box from a street corner, slide it into the back of the cart and throw a sheet over it. The other three times were to ask passers-by where Hengoid Street was. By the time they arrived, Macfarlane's teeth had started rattling with the vibration of the cart. As they dismounted, the doctor gazed forlornly at the blue box on the back of the cart. Macfarlane thought he heard him mutter, I know you don't like being on your side, but if you were upright you might fall off into the road and you wouldn't like that at all. He shook himself and glanced at Macfarlane. Follow me and be prepared for anything. How do I prepare myself for anything? Macfarlane hissed, but the doctor was already moving. The boards that formed the walls of the warehouse were damp, making it easy enough for them to pull away the bottom few, leaving a hole through which they could climb. They found themselves immediately behind a tall, wide stack of milk bottle crates. Macfarlane followed the doctor to the far end, and together they peered round the edge of the stack. And gasped. Macfarlane's brain seemed to struggle with several impossible concepts at once. He froze, his mind fixated on what he was seeing, and yet quite unable to comprehend it. It was only the doctor's elbow hitting him in the ribs that broke the spell. And breathe, the doctor said. The thing in the centre of the warehouse space was clearly a ship of some kind. Yet, just like the bowship that he and the doctor had come across in Scotland on their previous adventure, it was never intended to sail the seas. It was, Macfarlane realised, a ship built for traversing the cosmos. Its design was fabulous, all curved lines, rills, extrusions and stubby projections. But the creatures that moved around its base were even more incomprehensible. Strange things the size of a man, but with boneless, curling limbs that might have been either legs or arms, emerging from some kind of half-biological, half-mechanical, shell-like armour. The Shrave, the doctor murmured. They're a long way from home. These are aliens, Macfarlane ventured. From another star. Indeed they are. And what are they doing on Earth? Are they invading? I don't think so. That's not their style. He paused. The last time I checked, they were attempting to build up a military empire by scavenging old technology left behind on dead worlds. Although nobody is quite sure why. They're not a particularly aggressive race. His voice took on a darker tone. In particular, they've put a lot of effort into looking for things left over from the war between the Time Lords and the Great Vampires. You mean, like the bowship in Edinburgh? Those and other things. My people used to be very accomplished at coming up with weapons with the power to crack galaxies apart if used wrongly. Or in some cases, rightly. And we weren't the only ones fighting. The Quirm had allied themselves with us, and they were master strategists and inventors. If the Rachnos were born hungry, the Quirm were born curious and already thinking. The Quirm and the Time Lords together were a particularly ruthless and effective combination. Or so I've been led to believe by the old stories. But if these Shrave are looking for old technology, what are they doing on this planet? 
We must be so technologically inferior compared with them as I suppose they are to the Quirm and the Time Lords. The Shrave must have somehow heard about the Enerba bowship and made their way here to see if there was anything else they could vacuum up. But that doesn't explain Dr. Trethewey or the missing bits of people. How did they fit in? Gazing upwards, McFarlane noticed that the roof of the warehouse seemed to be intact. Judging by the state of the girders and the dirtiness of the glass, it wasn't a new construction. How did the Shrave get their ship in here? he asked. Probably one of the technologies they've picked up along the way. Some kind of whole ship teleportation. People used to call ships that used it hop skippers. It usually only works over short distances, but it's useful for getting past shields and barriers. He frowned. I don't think their captains were ever called hop skipper skippers, which looking back on it seems like a missed opportunity. As they continued to watch from their hiding place, McFarlane ventured a question that had been hanging heavily on his mind. Doctor, now that we're here at the Centre of Operations, do you have any sort of plan in mind? Several. Most of them were work, and the one that just might is going to mean I have to break a couple of my people's rules. I feel about as useful as a third wheel or a penny farthing. Just tell me what I can do to help, anything. The Doctor shrugged. What I need most at the moment is, ironically, time. Then take this as a present from me. And with that, McFarlane stepped out into the open. He sensed the Doctor reaching out frantically to pull him back, but he took several rapid steps towards the spaceship and the Shrave. Excuse me, I'm looking for the leader of... of the Shrave. Is he around here somewhere? I would like to discuss your surrender. The tentacled, half-shelled aliens stopped what they were doing and turned around to stare at him with stork-mounted eyes. Some of them pointed things that were quite probably weapons. McFarlane took another few steps forward, trying to look as confident as possible. Behind him, he heard a faint scuffling noise, and he hoped it was the Doctor moving off to do whatever it was he had to do. One of the Shrave, bigger than the rest and with an enameled shell, undulated towards him. I am Hlareg, senior military archaeologist of this expedition. Who are you, human, and what do you know of the Shrave? McFarlane replied, Not human. After all, what human would be aware of aliens and... He gestured towards the object in the middle of the hangar. Spaceships hidden on this planet. Our agent, Tathui, knows. The professor's name took on a strange, glutinous quality in the alien's voice. Try again. Who are you to call for our surrender? I am a Time Lord, McFarlane announced grandly, and I am here to judge you. It may have been his imagination, but he thought the assembled trave all slithered backwards slightly. Clareg gazed at him, but it was impossible to tell what the alien was thinking. I thought you would be taller, it said eventually. Races from the old times generally were. Its eyes did a strange sideways blink. And on what criteria shall you judge us? If we had known you were here, we would have just asked. Asked what? About your weapons and how to get them. McFarlane kept silent. As a reporter, he had learned a long time ago that if he left enough space, people would eventually feel they had to fill it, usually with something useful. The alien leader was no exception. You Time Lords hit all of your weapons, it said testily, 
and left their locations and their operating instructions encoded in the biological material of thousands of developing races around the galaxy in case you ever vanished or lost access to your own records. We have been sifting body parts from alien species all over this sector of the galaxy for the genetic codes. But if you care anything for these humans, and I presume you do as you are here with them, then you will save them from further harm. Tell us where the codes are, or we will continue the harvest. McFarlane felt sick. He had, of course, read Charles Darwin's work in which the scientists suggested that inherited characteristics, such as eye colour and temperament, were passed from parents to children via small, organic particles. But was he really hearing correctly? Had the Doctor's own people hidden their own military secrets within the biological material of other species? And were the Shrave so amoral that they would search those species' bodies for the information? But... But why do you need these weapons? He asked weakly. The Shrave leader sensed his emotional turmoil. Its eye stalks dipped suspiciously. A great storm is coming, it said after a pause. And these ancient weapons will be required. Your people will be fighting a war across time itself and everyone else will be left to defend themselves as best they can. It is our duty to the universe to reassemble as many of these weapons as possible. One eye stalk dipped lower than the other as it stared at McFarlane. If indeed they are your people, and if you are a Time Lord, you'll seem to know even less than we do. Abruptly it turned around and started to move away. Shoot this creature's arms off and see if it regenerates. If it doesn't, it isn't a Time Lord. Suddenly McFarlane was the focus of every single alien weapon in the warehouse. He took a deep breath, desperately trying to think of some final bluff he could use, but he had nothing. He heard what seemed like distant thunder. The great storm is coming, Flaragut said, and it sounded as if the alien creature was correct. But as the noise grew, McFarlane realised it wasn't outside. It was here, inside the warehouse. And, instead of a white flash of lightning, a blue pulsing light faded into existence. The Shrave lowered their weapons uncertainly, and McFarlane gazed around in confusion. What he had taken for one peal of thunder had multiplied tenfold, and then a hundredfold. Where a moment ago there had been one flashing blue light, there were now others flashing, all across the warehouse. Beneath them, the outlines of tall blue crates, just like the one outside on the back of the cart, were fading into view from nowhere. The Time Lords! The Shrave leader yelled. They have found us! They seek to protect their weapons! It started undulating rapidly across the floor towards his spacecraft. Retreat! I order and retreat! The stroboscopic flashing and the cacophony of a thousand peals of thunder confused and disoriented McFarlane. He threw a desperate arm across his eyes and tried to block his ears with his palms. The flashing lights seemed to penetrate his very flesh, while the thunder echoed in his bones. It was like being inside a kaleidoscope beneath the world's largest waterfall. Suddenly, everything was calm, and someone was gently pulling McFarlane's arm away from his face. You have hidden depths, my friend, said the doctor, 
His sharp-featured face gazed down at Macfarlane in wonder. What happened? I think between us, we saved the day. Macfarlane gazed around. Apart from the two of them, the warehouse was empty. Where did they all go? They retreated in the face of a superior, albeit illusory, force. I think our job here is done. He frowned as he pulled Macfarlane upright. I have a great deal of travelling to do in the next few weeks, but right now I can hear a traditional Welsh breakfast calling to us both, in a very loud voice. Travelling where? Macfarlane asked. Back here again and again, the doctor said mysteriously. Every single trip will be breaking the rules of my people, but it's something that needs to be done. I fooled the shrave this time, but I might not be allowed to do it again. Macfarlane recalled what the shrave leader had said about a great storm and a war across time, and he shivered. He would tell the doctor, but not right now. Macfarlane breathed a sigh of relief. They found a hotel restaurant not far from the docks that was willing to give them food, providing they could pay. While Macfarlane secured a table and placed their order, the doctor supervised two porters as they slid his strange blue crate precariously from the back of Wolfcastle's cart. When his plate of food arrived, Macfarlane looked over it suspiciously. What exactly is a traditional Welsh breakfast? It's just like a traditional English breakfast, said the doctor, already tucking in. That's good to know. Macfarlane relaxed and picked up his fork. With a vital addition, of course, of seaweed. Seaweed? Really? Oh, yes. The doctor indicated what Macfarlane had taken to be a rather misshapen piece of toast. They call it lava bread. It's made using seaweed. Macfarlane put his fork down again. What is it with the Welsh people and food? Don't complain about seaweed. It's very nutritious. High in iodine. Although, to be fair, I've met some varieties that seemed happier to eat people than the other way around. Picking up his fork again, Macfarlane suddenly caught sight through the window of the doctor's blue crate on the pavement outside. If you don't mind me asking, Doctor, what is that thing? He gestured towards the window with a mushroom on his fork. The doctor smiled. There are many answers to that question. For instance, I could say it's my closest friend. Or I could quote W.S. Gilbert and say that it's something between a large bathing machine and a very small second-class carriage. Either could be true, or neither, or both. So you're not going to tell me? No, the doctor said, with a half-apologetic, half-angelic smile. And are you going to explain any more about what you did back there in the warehouse? Again, no. Or the great war that the Shraves seem to think is coming? Is it something England needs to be prepared for? Should I alert the war office? The doctor shook his head. That would be like a nest of ants wondering if they should become involved in the charge of the Light Brigade. A shadow passed across his face and he continued. I may have started some hairs running by my actions. If word gets out, however wrongly, that my people are taking a more active role in affairs again, other races might start to panic and take action. So basically, Macfarlane said in exasperation, I'm going to be left with half a story, just like last time. Indeed, the doctor exclaimed. Isn't that far more interesting than knowing everything? Just answer me one question, please, doctor. Just one. The doctor nodded. Macfarlane asked, Will we meet again? The doctor grinned. I think you can guarantee it.
Suresh was written by Andrew Lane and read by Dan Starkey. The reading was produced by Neil Gardner with sound design by David Darlington. The project editor and executive producer for BBC Audio was Michael Stevens. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this.